Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. In this episode, we feature three stories from the current winter 2015-2016 issue of Connecticut Explored. In our first segment, What It's All About, the magazine's editorial team members, Mary Donahue and Dave Corrigan, talk with publisher Elizabeth Norman and editor Jennifer LaRue Hugan about the big ideas and their favorite stories. The second segment, a bird call moment, takes you out in the field to the McLean Game Refuge in Granby to hear author Rich Malley demonstrate the subject of his story, Roger Eddy's deceptively simple Audubon bird call. And in our third segment, It Doesn't Look Like a Toaster, Connecticut Explores editorial assistant, a newly minted graduate of the University of Hartford, takes us to the New Britain Industrial Museum to find out more about the myriad early 20th century home appliances, hardware, and more made in in that city. Stay with us as we delve into Connecticut's iconic brands. So when you guys speak, if you could just lean up toward the mic a little bit so we don't have it just sticking in your face right now, but when you do take a turn to talk, don't sit back in your chair, but lean forward a little bit and talk right okay. like I'm okay. quote, talking this close. And if, you know, Mary's talking, you just elbow her, and Dave, you can't get a word in edge. <laughs> 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 take the mic over. <laughs> oh, you know it too well. <laughs> we'll edit all of that levity in. <laughs> This is Jennifer Hugan welcoming you to What's It All About, where we uh, tell listeners of the Grading the Nutmeg podcast what the current issue of the magazine Connecticut Explored is all about. We're looking at the winter issue of the magazine, which is all about iconic Connecticut brands, and you might be surprised by some of the things we write about in there. We have with us two of our authors and people closely associated with the magazine. We've got Mary Donahue, who is our assistant publisher, and we've got Dave Corrigan, another frequent contributor, and he's the curator of the Museum of Connecticut History. We've also got with us this evening Elizabeth Norman, who is the publisher of the magazine. So let's get going. Mary, Dave, welcome. Thank Thank you. you. Glad to be here. Dave, I've often had the idea that Connecticut is really best known as a place that made machines that made things, that it was a place most celebrated for its precision manufacturing. So when we were planning this issue, I was frankly kind of surprised to hear Pepperidge Farm, which we talk about in the issue, and Bigelow Tea, um, Stanley, which is now Stanley Black & Decker, some really huge nationally, internationally named companies that I had no idea were made in Connecticut, but maybe you can just comment. Yeah, starting in the 1850s, the machine tool industry developed out of actually the firearms industry. Um, They were the first precision-made parts. They could be made um, interchangeable, and what you had to have to get interchangeability was machine manufactured. Hartford companies like Pratt & Whitney, uh, they were making machines for firearms companies around the area. Colt developed their own machine tool department, but it never reached the same proportions as Pratt & Whitney. Uh, Other companies around the state, Hendy Machine in Torrington, uh, Bridgeport Machine, obviously in Bridgeport, well, no, those are a lot of those stories you will actually read about. Some other issues and uh, past and, uh, and future of Connecticut explored because I'm thinking particularly when we 
delve into World War One and any of the wars where there was quite a lot of uh, war material being manufactured, Connecticut is is really a, 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 an important supplier. This issue, branding, is such a hot term, maybe even a hackney overused term today. We all ha- are supposed to have our personal brands now as well as, as, well as corporate brands. Um, but some of these are really big. So Mary, one of the brands that we talk about and we cover in the uh, photo essay, but which you covered in a much longer essay earlier, is Dickinson Witcher Hazel. So tell us, tell us about that story. This is a very New England product because it's a, it's a shrub that's grown here in New England. It's grown in the swamps. You could harvest it during the fall and the winter. It made farmers extra money during the downtime in the farming seasons. And they figured out a process that would use every bit of it. The flowers and the shrub would come in. They would separate the flowers from the actual woody part of the plant. That part of the plant would be burned in the boilers, big little boilers made New Haven, to create all the energy needed to steam out the essence from the flowers that actually makes the witch hazel. And then those ashes uh, that could come out of the boilers would go out on the grounds and they would grow more shrubs. So it was a very green process and one that used every aspect and every piece of the plant. But it's also a product that is found in almost all cosmetics and was one that was used by people like my mother's generation and my grandmother's generation for the be-all and end-all antiseptic. But now it's still produced under very pristine conditions, modern conditions. And is it considered an organic and natural product? It is. So it does have that natural, I think, appeal. Dickinson's Witch Hazel is one item in a beautiful photo essay that appears in this issue of the magazine that uh, Dave and Elizabeth worked on together, um, highlighting a handful of these other brands. Um, yeah, t- tell us about this Casco cigarette lighter, because this is one of those products. You may not know the name, but you know the product. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this, Dave raised this as an idea to team meeting, and I think we were all surprised to find that the classic Push and Dash cigarette lighter uh, was made out of Connecticut. Until the 1990s, uh, virtually every car manufactured in in America from the 1930s or 40s onward had one of these dashboard lighters, and it was the product of the Connecticut Automotive Specialty Company, which became known as Casco Products in Bridgeport. The company was founded in the 20s, and they developed a uh, automotive cigarette lighter where the lighter was connected to a power source and uh, it would be pulled out and the cigarette would be lit then it would be reeled back into the to the uh, holder on the dashboard. In 1958 Casco manufactured an automatic lighter that you could just push into um, a receptacle on the dashboard and the coil inside the lighter would be heated and you just pull it out, light your cigarette and you push it back into the to the receptacle. And they claimed that it was the original lighter in nine out of ten cars manufactured in America. Of course, the decline in smoking after the 80s and 90s led to the demise of the dashboard cigarette lighter. Uh, the space that that once took up is now occupied by USB ports and various other things, which Casco has evolved into manufacturing themselves. So they still have a kind of a, an automotive niche um, to continue on with their their original innovation. The company is still around. It's uh, located in Bridgeport, 
and was acquired by what's known as the Amphenol Corporation of Wallingford. The other fun story that uh, Dave brings to this issue is uh, about the Allen Wrench. Any, any of us, and, and I am one of them, who is, uh, just loves to put together IKEA furniture is well acquainted with the Allen Wrench. It's one of those products that you never really think about where did it come from. Or, and, and this isn't a case where um, Allen invented it, but it, it, it was very much perfected in this case in Connecticut. Would you, would you agree? Yeah, he, um, William G. Allen, for whom the, the Allen Wrench is named, was uh, born in Rockville in 1861, and he worked in and ran several machine shops around the area, and he discovered that there was a safety problem involved with the way many of the machine tools were constructed. They were held to, the various parts were held together by six-sided bolts that protruded out from the surface of the, of the machine and the parts that they held together. Mechanics and people in the shops were uh, prone to banging their heads or catching their clothing, which could be a very serious problem in a machine shop. And he devised uh, what's basically a, a set screw with a six-sided slot in it and a wrench, which he called a, a crank. And the invention uh, offset this protruding uh, hex-headed uh, bolt problem by being flush with the surface, and he would use these cranks to screw them into the machine to uh, hold the pieces together. No one really concerns themselves with his set screws anymore, but his, his lasting fame is the, the wrench or the crank that he devised to turn these set screws uh, into the machines, and he's forever known for inventing the Allen wrench. Do you know why the six-sided um, pole with the, used with that little wrench was advantageous over just a flathead screwdriver or a Phillips head? I th think it was because it's, it, there's more flat surfaces for the wrench to, to grip, mm -hmm. and it won't slip out of, the, out of the hole in the set screw. One of the things I loved about reading these stories, including the two about women who started uh, businesses in the Depression, Bigelow Tea and the Pepperidge Farm stories, I love the fact that Connecticut has its own claim to the, uh, you know, create the product in your kitchen or your garage origin story. How about you, Mary or Dave, any, uh, or, or Jennifer, any, uh, any favorites you have from this issue? I think the food stories are always interesting. I think that's something everybody can identify with. I love the ads, and I like to I like to look at them sometimes uh, in thinking about how they're meant to appeal to women shoppers. And if you look at the International Silver ad, for example, those were primarily targeted at women and women that were being married and women that were expected to do entertaining. And so I think both the food stories and the entertaining pieces for International Silver both are really interesting. And the Pepperidge Farm story, I think, is interesting because in the Depression, uh, you know, that long ago, the, the impetus for starting that business was a child's food allergy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, f children and food allergies is, is huge today, and many parents are concerned about that. I, I thought the international silver story was, was interesting. It's, uh, in a way, a, a microcosm of, of uh, American industrial history. Uh, it was formed by the conglomeration and merger of about 50 different companies manufacturing silver and silver plate in Connecticut, many of which had been formed in the 1840s and 50s. Um, the 
International Silver is typical of many Connecticut companies that uh, continue to flourish even during the Depression. They were able to appeal to a, a certain uh, class of people that could afford silver and silver plate, and I think they were able to manage uh, to weather the Depression quite well. Converting from domestic production to wartime production in the 40s was also typical of many companies, and their use of uh, nationally and internationally known designers for many of their pieces uh, was in something in a way similar to what Chase Brass and Copper had done also in the 30s and 40s. It's just a, it was a, a, I think a fascinating uh, case study of one company that has kind of implications for other Connecticut companies as well. And, th- and that story, the author is, is making a case that international silver pieces are becoming more collectible. So when I was working with the author to uh, get images, I was surprised to find how some of the most spectacular pieces are in the collection of the Dallas Museum of Art. I liked how that one also percolated out into the World's Fair of 1964. We had done a story on that a couple issues ago, and there are so many Connecticut connections to the 1964 New York City World's Fair, but this beautiful display of the silver at the fair is really the last hurrah of this magnificent artisan-designed, beautifully crafted silver. One of my favorite stories in the issue is one written by one of our team members, Emily Gifford, about Timex, another huge brand that is uh, Connecticut-based. It started out as uh, the Waterbury Clock Company, and as Emily tells us, uh, in 1928, the company was actually on the verge of bankruptcy. We never would have heard of Timex, uh, but the company then acquired the rights to a cartoon character, just a year old, called Mickey Mouse and uh, debuted the Mickey Mouse watch at the 1933 Chicago World's Fair. And not only did that save Waterbury Clock from uh, bankruptcy, but during the Great Depression, they were selling so many of these watches that they actually rehired workers and expanded their plant. I think that was just fascinating to learn about. All right, well, thank you both for for talking with us about the, uh, the magazine and about the issue, and thanks for your contributions to it, too. A bird call moment. Hello, this is Jennifer LaRue with Elizabeth Norman of Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. One afternoon in early November, we found ourselves in an unusual place, given that our guest, Rich Malley, spent much of his career as curator at places such as Connecticut Historical Society and Mystic Seaport. Rich met us at the McLean Game Refuge to, as Rich described it, conduct a field experiment on the subject of Rich's story in the winter issue. You'll hear more about that in a minute, but first, let me set the stage. The McLean Game Refuge comprises about 4,400 acres of forest and open space, straddling Simsbury and Granby. 3,200 of those acres were donated to a nonprofit trust by George P. McLean upon his death in 1932. McLean was born in Simsbury in 1857 and was a lawyer, a state representative, and a state senator in the 1880s. He was governor of the state from 1901 to 1903 and a U.S. senator for three terms from 1911 to 1929. He loved the outdoors and he amassed this land by purchase through an inheritance of some $3 million he received in 1905. When McLean died in 1932, he left the property and a small endowment to the McLean Fund, a trust created by his will. The McLean Fund continues to maintain the property and provides public access to it. And that brings us back to Rich and his story, The Simple Genius of the Audubon Bird Call. 
Newington-born Roger Eddy invented that bird call in 1952. Eddy was a farmer, writer, state representative, and state senator, and he was also an inventor. You can learn more about how and why Roger invented this now ubiquitous bird call by reading Rich's story. But right now, we were here on a mission to hear that bird call in action. Now, I think that one of the first misconceptions people have about this bird call is that it's something you blow into, but that's definitely not the case. How does it actually work? It actually works by rubbing a, um, a turned uh, metal uh, plug inside a hollowed-out wooden barrel. And the barrel is made of birch, and the plug today... Um, is made of a zinc alloy. Um, when Roger started producing these in the early 1950s, they were actually made of pewter. And um, these calls are different than the types of calls that hunters use. We think of things like a turkey call, which you would blow through. It's a type of horn that would attract a particular type of bird, in that case, turkeys. This bird call does not mimic a particular bird, but rather produces bird-like sounds, which is intended to attract songbirds. And you can vary the sound, um, and the, the more you play with it, kind of the better you get, and your repertoire uh, d develops uh, more and more. Okay, well, you're holding out on us. Let Let's us have a it. listen. All Let's right. Hear it. Okay, well, here's, here, here's what it would sound like. If I had that squeak on a hinge or something, I'd be tempted to uh, hit it with some WD-40. Ah, but that would that that would ruin the sound of the of the but, of the call. But, but it does have a something, and there's some pitch or some kind something that lubricates it, or not, or maybe opposite it lubricates, creates. Um, right, it actually works on on friction. It really does work on friction. If after years of use, it becomes increasingly difficult to get a good a, a good chirp, if you will. What's recommended is a little drop of pine rosin in in the barrel, um, and it would restore the the, the sound of the uh, of, of 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 the call. As we walked to a more open area in the hopes of attracting birds, Rich continued to tell us more about the bird call. Roger would be able to produce as many as two hundred thousand of these in a given year, and sell them. And no one was more amazed than Roger, who felt that just about everyone in the world should have one of these by now. And why is, this, why is the man still, still seemingly so great for this, um, for, for this little device? Um, one of the things that happened, I think, is that there was a kind of an increase in, in interest in nature-based activities, including, you know, bird watching, you know, type of thing, bird photography, and so on. And I think that might have been one of the reasons why demand continued, even with relatively high production numbers. Thank you for that. Now, it looks like we're in a kind of open spot here. There's some nice. woods around here. Um, there's a stream right next to us. Um, why don't we give it a try and see what happens?
the squirrel seemed to we, like we it. We attracted a squirrel. <laughs> really? A squirrel call. Mm. New. So, Rich, are you yourself a uh, bird watcher? Um, I, I'm not a devoted bird watcher, but I, I have spent plenty of time sitting in my own backyard, stretched out on uh, on the hammock, and, and playing with with the bird calls and and watching, you know, songbirds come in and land on the uh, on the branches above me. It really, really works. Yeah, I think we should just come to your backyard. Why don't we? <laughs> the okay. hammock sounded really nice. Yeah, there you go. There you go. <laughs> well, let's just stand for another moment and listen. Those okay. geese are up overhead again. Thanks, Rich, for bringing us to this beautiful historic landscape and for demonstrating for our listeners how Roger Eddy's deceptively simple invention became a must-have for bird watchers the world over. You can read more about Roger Eddy's Audubon Bird Call and other iconic Connecticut-made products in the winter 2015-2016 issue of Connecticut Explored, which is available at ctexplored.org. This is Sarah Jane Cedrone for Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I found it interesting writing about the New Britain Industrial Museum in the winter 2015-2016 issue because I really had no idea what to expect when I was given the assignment. Today, I'm standing in the New Britain Industrial Museum with Karen Hudkins, the museum's executive director, and so many of these things that were commonplace in times past I'm completely unfamiliar with. Of course, I've used a toaster before, but this one is radically different from the ones that we have today. Karen, please describe this early model for our listeners. Sarah Jane, what you see before you is the transformation of toaster design. From the very beginning, probably, and I'm thinking it's 1916, 1910, because the reality is, is electricity was not really common in people's homes until around 1915, 1916, a little bit before 1920. So there really wouldn't be any reason to make an electrical appliance. So. The first one is basically an electrical element with two wires that were designed to hold the bread up against the toasting part. And then you have to take the hot wire, flip it down, turn the toast, and then let it spring back up so that it holds the bread against the toasting part. The company that manufactured these toasters and basically any product that you needed in your home, both before and after electricity became common, was Landers, Ferry, and Clark. Uh, one of their trademarks uh, was the trademark known in every home, and they produced and sold their products under the universal trade name. And anything you needed, refrigerators, washing machines, vacuum cleaners, waffle irons, vacuum bottles, hair dryers in the 60s, bathroom scales, all were made by Landers Ferry and Clark in incredible numbers. By the end of the Second World War, as they were gearing up for post-war production, Landers claimed that there were 50 million universal products in use worldwide, which is pretty incredible when you think of the Depression and then the, the, war, the impact the war had on consumer goods. 50 million, that's a pretty big number. And what ultimately happened to Landers, Ferry, and Clark? As business changed in the 50s and the 60s, they got new management on their board who was not 
really a manufacturing guy. So the first thing he did, because they wanted to make the company profitable for the stockholders, was to close the cutlery department. And then they made an electric toothbrush. They made some other things. They were still making electric carving knives. But they weren't as successful as they wanted to be. And they felt that they couldn't compete against GE. So somewhere in this late 60s, 67 or somewhere along there, they sold off their entire electrics division to General Electric for $7 million. And GE manufactured the coffee pots and some other things in the Landers' plant on Ellis Street for a couple of years. And then, as I understand it, packed it all up and moved it down to Bridgeport. I didn't understand why GE would pay $7 million for an electrical appliance company when GE was already making their own electrical appliances. And I was told that it was because they wanted the patent for the Permatel coffee maker. And we recently found out from a visitor that what was extraordinary about this coffee maker is that the body and the spout are seamless. And they're formed through a scientific process where a bar of nickel is put into an electrochemical bath and a nylon pattern that is shaped like the coffee maker, the body of the coffee maker, is put in the same bath, and an electrical current is run through the pattern. And so the nickel goes from the bar of nickel and attaches itself to the pattern, and you get a seamless body for the coffee pot. So that's another one of those famous old New Britain patents. Yes, exactly right. (laughs) So can you tell me a little bit about the pre-electricity goods that were manufactured in New Britain? Landers started out as just a general hardware jobber like so many other people in New Britain did. But they decided that they were going to make life easier for the American housewife and that that is what they focused their time and energies on. And one of their first big commitments was scales because you not only needed a scale long ago to make sure that the butcher gave you five pounds of meat, you also needed a scale because when you baked in, when you bake in large quantities, as most people were doing back in the day, you weigh the flour, you don't measure it out. And even today, if you read some recipes, Martha Stewart will say, take five pounds of apples. But you can't do that if you don't have a scale. Mm-hmm. And then they started to develop anything you possibly needed. So Uh, coffee grinders. They made a bread mixer, which won a gold medal at the 1904 St. Louis World's Fair because it cut the time of mixing and kneading bread down from 30 minutes to three minutes, which is a big saving. A non-electric cake mixer, which is great. Machines to make mayonnaise and whipped cream. Raisin cedars. And then the one everybody knows is a universal food chopper, which started out life as a meat chopper with a smooth barrel. But Landers, using a patent developed by a man down in New Haven, made an important change where they striated the barrel so that the food would move through it better. And now you could put anything in it, bread, fruit, nuts, and it would do a nice job chopping it. Whereas if you put it in a meat chopper, it would just kind of all mush it all up and it was pretty unappetizing. Yeah, the poster is interesting. And people either really love this poster or really hate it. We have one of the universal food choppers and... Uh, halfway inside of the food chopper already is a pig being followed by a few of his friends, a uh, head of lettuce, a couple of goats, cows, lobsters, basically anything that you could think of. It's hard to imagine something like that being particularly marketable today. But you'll notice, and this is it's in this kind of fantasy style, you know, of the 20s or the mm. 30s, 
all the the head the celery stalks have legs the crackers yeah. have legs all the animals look happy you know there's <laughs> chickens and everybody is rushing to get into the food chopper and i can't help believing that that was their marketing thought yeah. that if it was a different type of food chopper none of these animals would be this happy <laughs> <laughs> and you'll notice up on the wall we've also got one that was in german um uh, landers sold these products all over the world and in fact they um, adapted the food chopper to become a corn mill, and they sold over 10 million of these wow. by like the, th you know, by like the 30s or the 40s, and created plants down in um, South America and Mexico so that they could produce them down there to be closer to their market. It looks like a more industrialized version of thinking about food, um, and a lot of this stuff, the food chopper and the cake mixers, look like something you would find more in a workshop or. Uh, some kind of woodworking hardware place than a, in a kitchen. You know, that is an excellent point. I just recently came across a reference that said that appliances of this type, so it's Landers, Ferry, and Clark, but they weren't the only company in America making appliances. This type, changed the way people process their food and changed the way people ate, um, which is kind of interesting. And you, you think how fabulous this would have been um, back in the day when you have to do everything from scratch. So think how great it is that you can save 30 minutes baking bread. Uh, what I find fascinating about this, it's not just the industrial story and, the, and making all this amazing stuff that stood up and had um, uh, earned great reputations for the companies, but it's the branding. So in World War I, when it became crucial to save food and the president wants everybody to save food, Landers rebrands the food chopper, the coffee percolator, the bread um, maker and the butter churn gets rebranded as a butter merger all so that you can be be patriotic and help the president in his effort to save food so they they figured out that with the butter churn you could take a pound of butter and a pint of milk and run it through the butter churn and end up with two pounds of butter so we've moved to the other side of the room here and I'm seeing a lot of builders hardware can you tell us a little bit about the companies that made these things Builder's hardware doesn't make up any part of a building. It supports the building and it makes it work. So it's not just hinges and doorknobs and keys. It's air exchange registers and door openers and locks. All of these things were made in New Britain at one time or another. The companies that are the most well-known, though, and that everybody still sees great evidence of are Corbin and Russell and Irwin and Stanley Works. Corbin and Russell and Irwin made very fancy, highly designed hardware. In fact, Russell and Irwin has been credited with being the first American hardware company to actually design hardware. It's Gothic, it's Old English, yeah. it's, you know, Louis XIV. This hardware, as you walk around the world today, you go into the Harriet Beecher Stowe House, I think they've got a Russell and lock on their front door. Um, it's the, they did all, the hardware for the State House. This Connecticut State House came out of New Britain, a beautiful, they've got these hinges with grapevines on them and everything, all done by Corbin and Russell and Irwin, all cast individually. In the 1890s, as buildings were going up in San Francisco, Corbin was sending out monogram doorknobs and other parts of hardware, bits of hardware for the Call Spreckles building that went up on Market Street. They did the hardware for Rockefeller Center during the Depression, and then at the other end of the century, they did hardware for the World Trade Center. And then Stanley Works did the architectural hinges um, uh, for the World Trade Center as well. And this is really what I liked people to look for whenever they are out, because this really sort of reinforces 
the reach that New Britain, Connecticut had um, beyond the city borders and, the, and beyond the state. Um, and this is the stuff that's still around. But uh, it's this hardware that people can really see everywhere um, that really represents New Britain to this day. So what gave Stanley the edge over its competitors in New Britain in the early 1800s? Stanley's always been a very innovative company. And um, it was started by a young man named Frederick T. Stanley, who wanted to produce a quantity of goods, but he was hampered by the fact that we have, there's no significant water power in New Britain. All other manufacturing communities grew up around a river because you need that kind of power if you want to be able to make anything in quantity. New Britain didn't have that. So Frederick T. Stanley found out about these steam engines that you could use to power machinery. And he went down to Brooklyn, New York in the 1830s, purchased one of these steam engines, put it on a boat, sent it up the Connecticut River, got it here from Hartford. And it took him 10 years to figure out how to work it into his manufacturing processes because it was the first in New Britain. It could have very well been the first in the whole state of Connecticut. So all that associative technology was not available to him. And if he had a problem, he had to figure it out himself. By the 1840s, he's using it in his bolt manufacturing. And then everybody else in New Britain wants one. So Russell and Irwin gets one for one of their early companies. And then these other manufacturers started. And I think that's really what set New Britain apart from everybody. Frederick T. Stanley gets this machine. And now he can run it all day, every day. It doesn't matter what the weather's like. And it was a real game changer. So by 1840, steam power comes to New Britain. And by the end of the century, New Britain has been awarded more patents than any other city of relative size in the United States. Exactly So that didn't take very long at all. No. So Karen, could you tell our listeners about your favorite object in the museum? I think my favorite object is the Stanlow toy for a number of reasons. Stanley developed this toy during the Depression because the hardware division was not making any money. So somebody at Stanley came up with this toy that is really just a four-sided hinge. It's got the barrels just like on a regular hinge. There are different sizes of these four-sided hinges or three-sided hinges in a box. There are triangles of different sizes. There are squares of different sizes. There are oblongs of different sizes. And the toy came with a bunch of steel pins that you could use to put the hinges together, just like you use to attach a hinge to a door. Stanley did this not just because they wanted to make money, but because they wanted to keep their workers employed. Because Stanley knew they had uh, this talented, trained, creative workforce, and that if they could not give them work, they were going to go off somewhere else. So it was really something to benefit the company, but it was also a way for them to hold on to their trained workers. In 1930, which is the first year that they made this toy, they sold $100,000 worth. And these sets were like $1, $5, $3. And in 1936, as the Depression ends and they start building things again and the hinge business picked up, they stopped making it and they never made it again. And this is the surprise for everybody who walks in here, even people who see themselves as uh, expert Stanley collectors. I, th- I think one of the reasons is because as World War II comes in and they want to turn in all the metal, they're collecting metal drives, I think a lot of these toys got turned in and, and destroyed. And that's why a lot of people aren't aware that this toy even exists. So that's my favorite toy, yeah, is the so Stanlow. This is kind of a fan favorite among visiting school groups. Yes, yeah. yes, parents as well. Well, Karen, on behalf of our listeners and everyone at Connecticut Explored, I just want to say thank you for taking the time to walk us around the museum and show us a couple of interesting things. And thank you, Sarah Jane, for the article and for coming here today and spending some time with us.
Thanks for listening. We wish to thank historian Rich Malley and Karen Hudkins and the New Britain Industrial Museum. On the next episode of Grading the Nutmeg, we listen in on the music making at the 125-year-old Musical Club of Hartford, featured in the fall 2015 issue of Connecticut Explored. And I'll take you on a history speed dating adventure at the fall 2015 conference of the Association for the Study of Connecticut History. To read the stories featured in this episode, subscribe or purchase the current or a back issue, visit ctexplored.org.